We are here. Yes. I needed to rush in because it's early my time. <laughs> I did realize, oh my gosh, we're doing this now. So we are back right now for another off-the-cuff episode of the Cold Star Project. We are here with Stuart Townsend. Thanks for being here, Stuart. Yeah, I was going to say good morning, but good afternoon here. Yes, it is. It <laughs> is five hours later there. Indeed. Let's dig into this. I think this is going to be fun today and very good for our, our listeners and viewers because we're going to get a chance to kind of pick your brain about the challenges of scaling, which you have seen both from the micro mouse up level view, say at Zendesk, and also the macro satellite view as a consultant. Um, let's dig into... A quick little thing at Zendesk. Tell us a little bit about scaling at Zendesk. That should be easy, and that's a name that people will recognize. Yeah, yeah. So, so Zendesk was a good, good, fun experience. So, I was there when it was around two hundred people globally. Yeah, about two hundred people globally. About thirty people in Europe. Joined the CD leadership team there, given a remit of building a channel program. Um, and as you do, you go through the interviews and you're sort of asking about the company and where it's at. And it's pre-IPO, dead exciting, brilliant. Then when you join, you actually realize that um, you've been sold a duff one because <laughs> there are no resources. <laughs> and the resources you have, you think, you know, Zendesk, it's a large company. It's got lots of money. But, but again, with any company, as it's grown, it still has that scaling challenges because it wants to do everything so quickly. Uh, but there's, only, there's not infinite resources. It's not like mm -hmm. when you're at Sun or Oracle um, in previous lives where there are infinite resources, but there isn't budget. So, so yeah, it was, it was fun. And, and sort of challenges that we had were, you know, really, Zen, Zendesk as a company was, was not that well known in the marketplace. And it was a brand. It was funky. It was cool. But actually trying to get the resources together and, and build a program based on you know marketing resources um customer service services that sort of thing was, was pretty hard because you have to do an internal sell to every single business unit and justify what a channel is and, and again I'll, I'll explain what a channel is and i don't yeah. mean this disrespectful to anybody because what i've found as being a consultant over the last 12 months talking about channel is most people go what's channel yeah. <laughs> So, so channel is selling through an indirect third party. It could be a value-added reseller. It could be a technology alliance. It could be a distributor. Um, and companies do that to scale because what they want is not to keep hiring direct headcount and scale in a, a linear fashion, but to volumize it and get partners to go out there and sell 24 hours a day in different geographic reasons, uh, regions. Sorry. Right. So that's, that's part of, that's what my remit was. But, but yeah, the, the, the scaling challenge was actually getting the internal buying and getting those resources together to get that organization moving and start doing that. And, you know, we're working to a plan and the plan was we'll do this in six to 12 months. And it was more like 24 to 28 months before we actually actually think rocking moving forward, really good revenue coming in. And then, then it was like, right, actually, you know, let's build a mature team and headcount around it. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those areas, if you start to look at a, a channel model, um, and you want to scale the company fast, don't expect a return against that uh, quickly because large companies like, like um, Zendesk, um, you know, any startup that sort of size looks at it and thinks it's great. It's going to solve mm -hmm. shorter, shorter term problems, not short term problems because they had really good revenue growth, but add revenue on quickly and it doesn't. It, it's think of a direct headcount and then add another six months on top of that. 
Nice. I was selling a firewall product. It was also an intelligent auto content filter and it did four things, you know, people would buy it for one and then, and then realize, Oh, it does all this other cool stuff through value added resellers as a channel marketer in 2008. I think yeah. I need people to understand this. I'm not some Johnny come lately here. I've been doing this a long freaking time and I took some time out to do some online marketing in the last six years, you know, um, but it's great to be back in this field. Um, as you say, it's not, it's not the panacea or the instant access to cash flow that people think it's going to be. It's going to take time and you can't just bust in there with this. Oh, I have this thing to sell. It's a relationship business. It's almost like having to go to buyers at Walmart. It, it, <laughs> they it is. have the distribution channel, but they're yeah. also the gatekeepers and they need to see, okay, this is going to make money for us or there's not um, 500 competing products on the shelves already. It, exactly. It's, it's a court and relationship and you've got to sort of build that mm -hmm. trust. And, um, you know, Zendesk was great because we were a brand that was well known in the SMB in the mid-market. So, uh, you know, I built a model going out to Google resellers because they saw the value in attaching that service. But going to a Marketo or uh, a Magento ecosystem, mm -hmm. they didn't because they were like, well, you know, you're, you're a small cog and we're not going to make lots of money. And we've got all these other vendors, like you say. Um, but again, it's that whole aspect. If you find a partner, you recruit them, you train them, you onboard them, then you've got to sell through them. But you've got, it's, it's like a marriage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you've got to keep that marriage blossoming all the time but if you drop it you know you, you drop your revenue really quickly so like you say it's, it's not the panacea whatsoever but i'm amazed by the amount of people that i speak to that don't understand how channel works but also mm -hmm. don't understand that it actually is available to companies that are doing like you know a couple of million or a million turnover a year maybe 50 staff um you know it's just it's available to them but you've just got to be very selective around it and understand like you say it's, it's not going to bring that money. It's, you know, it's not going to be a short-term quarterly fix and suddenly, you know, we're, 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 our valuation is going up threefold. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about this. When a company scales, and I, I have seen this all over, I mean, I, 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 not just in the tech field, as a company gets larger and the decision makers, the senior management gets abstractly retreating back from the front line, right? And they lose that sense of what's happening, right? What that frontline problem list is. I mean, I've been talking to vice presidents of business development for many, many years who had no clue and would be upfront honest about it, what problems their frontline salespeople were experiencing. They're like, I don't know. All they look at are their quarterly <laughs> budgets, right? And I have this revenue to make and I want to make it at this, say, cost of goods sold or this margin. And th that's what they're on about. You know, that's what they push, 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 right? How do you, what kind of a meat grinder, I guess, feeling can it be like when they've, they're putting that pressure on with these abstract numbers and then the people who are on the front lines actually have to deal with it? How does that yeah. feel? You were a business development rep, right? Yeah, so so I um, so at Zendesk, I was director of um, channel globally um, for the VARs and resellers. I had a colleague that managed BPOs, um, at DataSift frontline for 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 doing the BD side, you know. And basically, when it gets to that point, I leave. <laughs> and, and I don't mean that badly mm -hmm. because because when you get to that point, it means that the company has lost its fun uh, mm. side. So. 
did you know in a different life when I when I worked at uh, Sun I ran a startup program there and again talking to startups about that was always keep your ethos and make sure the front line know know what's going on and part of the policy I had was you know we'd have our enterprise sales reps that'd be selling to large financial institutes it'd be hardware etc etc was to bring some of those startups in and start to breathe some life back into some of those sales execs and make them aware of what's going on they got it, but then bring in the VPs and the SVPs to show them, like you say, they're at the sat in the tower. Once they get detracted and move away from the business, that's when life becomes really hard because you can't innovate. Decisions take longer to make and they're just they're stuck in a loop. And, mm-hmm. and again, when you go Wall Street as well, you're bound by your stock, um, you know, your stockholders mm-hmm. and that sort of thing as well. So you're going to be very sensitive from a legal aspect. But you, you know, you're right, Jason, it's that. You know, they move away from the front line and all they do is look at Salesforce or any CRM, but probably Salesforce, and look at their reports and look at numbers and look at graphs and don't really understand what, how the sales cycle is evolving and actually what's happening to generate those MQLs and get the SQLs moving and start generating those leads and start getting, you know, it gets harder and harder and harder. Because at first, it's dead exciting. You know, yeah. y- your leads are coming in, you're closing sales, you're banging the gong, everything is great. And then suddenly it starts to detract back and there's more meetings about meetings than there is actual work. So, yeah, so so for me, that, I mean, I'm being serious. That's the point. When it gets, basically, I get to a mantra. When it gets to like working at Oracle, I leave. <laughs> <laughs> and hence why I've gone consulting because I can do, I'm doing all that fun bit now with companies try to keep that ethos and it's not the company's fault that ethos happens it has to happen they have to have that organizational management structure but they have to keep the fun bit and make it flexible still to to make to make it real Mm -hmm. another thing that i've seen happen is the executives often came up through that sales flow right and uh, and they get stuck or marketing you know and they get stuck uh, now, looking at from the ivory tower perspective uh, of these reports and quarterly demands, right, of, of these are the numbers we need to achieve, but they believe that the things that the frontline people are doing to get there are the same stuff that they were doing mm-hmm. like five yeah, years okay. ago or 10 years ago. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but it's outdated now. Yeah. Your information yeah. is outdated. <laughs> and I'd like to hear you comment on that. Am I no, right? So Am I wrong? You know? No, it's so true. You, right. you, you'll get a company that will grow, you know, and it get to 50 people, 100 people. And those people get promoted and suddenly they become, you know, then they get to a point of being a VP or a general manager of a country. Um, and you're right. They're still thinking, well, actually, the front line is doing what we were doing three or four years ago. And, you know, we're hustling such like that. It's like, no, what they don't realize is the front line is bound by process and can't make a decision and is locked in. But also those execs, as they go upstream, predominantly because the companies are normally growing so fast and scaling so fast, don't have that training or support to prepare them for it. So they sit there and they're like, right, um, I've got this role. I've never actually done it before. I'm just going to make it up. Mm. <laughs> um, and they sort of then they end up having this firefight and then get siloed into, into a, a role that actually... The, they're probably not as comfortable doing or want to do overall because it seems exciting, but they've not been professionally prepared for it. They've just been slotted into it because everybody thinks that's actually what they want and it's great. Mm. And that has a detrimental effect on the business. It's not, you know, it should be, you know, what, what do you really want to do? Where do you want to be? Do you, do you really want to sit in marketing still or do you want to move into sales or do you want to go do customer service or mm. something else? 
Um, but you're right, they, they, they're locked in a perspective of right. what they did in the previous three or four years or whatever that time was leading up to it, not actually what is happening now. Uh, and then when you do these off-sites and they're really grand and they're great, the fab, they still don't go and talk to the, the field guys and go, what is actually happening out there? You know, for me, it's about why we're not closing sales. Why, you know, what, what is happening and what's blocking you? How do we remove those blockers? Right. Um, so. that, that unhappiness, that feeling of disquiet, yeah. that um, bound by process, the siloization, all those things that you mentioned, those are all things at Cold Star that, that our agents are brought in to kind of undo. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. there's legal stuff where, you know, if they're, they're a public company, okay, we got to do something some way, right? And there do need to be processes, right? There's quality assurance in that. And we are all about process control. However, if you have set something up and done it one way, and the mental picture that the executive has is of the way that it was done five years ago, that's locked into one very simple perspective, right? And, and there are many, many other options available to you. <laughs> so exactly. I kind of picture yeah. this, our agents yeah. unwiring crap and then plugging stuff back yeah. in, in different formats. And you're probably doing that too in your consulting yeah. role. It is. It's that, that aspect of people get locked into a process and think it's the right thing and they don't question it. They don't ask why. Because um, they've been told that's what you do. And, and it's just human nature that happens a lot of the time until you get sort of quite a, a character that comes in externally and goes... Right what the hell are we doing here? Why, why are you doing this? Why are you not using LinkedIn for generating leads or, mm-hmm. you know, using duck soup or meet Malcolm to do lead generation? Why are you scrape, you know, why are you manually, you know, it's, it's just those sort of things because again, the execs are locked in an ivory tower per se and, and don't really sort of see what's happening in, in the trends and what's going on um, and don't immerse themselves in there in podcasts like your podcast and, and things like that. They're just not aware of it. And the field guys are just like so pressurized to hit quarterly numbers, whether that's marketing, sales, et cetera, customer service, that they're just like, we're in this funnel. We do it this way and that's all we do because, you know, because it gets to that point where you've scaled and hyper growth has become so much that you become essentially a corporate entity. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the stuff that you could do in the early stages becomes is programmatic then and, and, and you, you sort of lose that that hustling right I and it's I, I mean I can give a very clear picture of that from my extremely early just out of college experience I worked with a small uh, power generation equipment company and uh, was setting up a worldwide distribution network for them right and we were bidding against much larger companies. We had an agreement with Kawasaki Heavy Industries for their gas turbine engines, right? And we would package them up and do a power plant. And uh, I remember one, I mean, I was 23 years old, you know, <laughs> thought I knew some stuff. <laughs> I was learning like crazy. And, uh, and we were bidding against one of these big companies and the um, prospect made a change. And this is all done with engineering documents, right? So they send out a spec and then you got to bid to the yeah. spec. And there's three different ways or more of, of you know, supplying a feature. So you got to decide what's the intention of the engineer here and do I go with the cheap version or the middle version or the nice version, which actually maybe they want all those features. And we had to change it. And he said, this is great, my boss said. This is great that they made this change because we will be able to turn this around today. And the big company we were bidding against, he said, it'll take him a week. <laughs> and this, that's the kind of ossified 
thing that yeah. happens it does yeah. as 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 organizations scale that you have to watch for i would concentrate now being the 43 year very year version of myself right of making and maintaining the nimbleness of that sales department of giving them the flexibility to make choices of being clear about okay in these parameters do whatever you know you like do yeah. whatever that needs to be done and get that order as long as it's profitable for us of course unless it's i mean a lot of the time in that industry they would give away the uh the, the power plant these are hundreds of thousands of dollars back in the 90s right they would give away the power plant to get the field service business where they right. would send a tech out to go work on it right and make a, a zillion dollars an hour right and charge per diem that, that, that's the thing though isn't it it's like you put those boundaries in place around that mm -hmm. with the remit of protect the mrr or the arr whichever your sort of measurements on always protect that don't give away services because then if you mm -hmm. give it away it never has value you've right. got to make sure it has a value attached to it and like you say it's but, but there's the boundaries, there's the remit. You can be nimble and agile around that, but always think, Mr. Salesperson, whatever you're giving away, you're giving away your commission. So <laughs> it's in your best interest either way. Um, and you know, if you're a high-scale company, more than likely everybody's got shares in it or options and things, so you're giving away part of your, your retirement fund. Um, and it is, it's just clearly explaining that and putting those, putting those boundaries and markets in place so it makes it more fun and exciting for them just to go out and not have to keep asking for forgiveness. What effect does that have on corporate culture when they have to keep coming back and groveling for forgiveness? Like, please, please, I didn't, I didn't mean to sell stuff. I didn't mean to sell it, honestly. Yeah. How dare just, you? Yeah. <laughs> hmm. I would like to dig into that a little more. <laughs> Is there a story yeah. that comes to mind? No, I'm just trying to think that. Um, so when I started at Sun, I'm trying to make sure I get this correct. It was. Um, it was basically if you do anything wrong, it was if you do anything wrong, um, only ask for forgiveness if it's something that's you know broke corporate regulations type of thing. It was, mm. it was a mantra of just go out and go and have fun, and only ask for forgiveness if if you've done something like I don't know, smack your manager in the face type of thing. <laughs> <You know, laughs> did that come down from Steve or, did, or was that, it? That, that was a Scott McNeely mantra all the way down okay. at some when he started was go out and have fun always keep the ethos of sun in, in your heart sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And you only have to have ask for forgiveness if you do something like really serious, like that sort of thing. Uh, you know, it's, it's just, it was just about some basic premise of, of that. Whereas Oracle, it was, yeah, that was, that was a different story. You won't even go to the Oracle story. For the, for the um, millennials listening. All right. Yeah. We were just talking about Sun Microsystems, <laughs> yeah, the no, company that Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, yeah. Uh, founded when he got ousted as the as the leader of Apple initially, and then yeah, he made was, a great comeback, which is cool. It was, it was part of it. Sun, was, uh, Sun was what they went to go build while he was away from Apple. He built part of it. It was, it was Scott right. McNeely and the other guys, and um, oh, in the eighties and stuff, and doing mm -hmm. crazy things with Ferraris and such like that. <laughs> but it was just. Um, but it was a fun time and it was sort of that company that had that sort of culture all the way through. And even though, oh, when I was there, I don't know, with like 100,000 employees or something ridiculous, you felt like you were a part of a smaller company because you always felt that. Hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's that sort of mantra of making sure that you don't have to ask for forgiveness in organizations or you always feel that you're under pressure to do that. 
that then takes away that impetus to go and do those crazy deals or have some fun or engage um, rather than becoming a Borg and just, you know, following, right. following the sort of zone of like, you know, I have to do this, it's quarterly and such. Right. Um, but, but there's a balance, isn't there? You know, there's a balance with everything. It's, at the end of the day, companies reporting back to Wall Street, there's certain boundaries it has to follow and such that I get that. Um, right. I mean, yeah, I mean, you've already said it, actually. A company needs to be clear, especially in the, the sales department, about what is our, our key indicator here, our key measure. And yeah. we are going to protect that. That's, these, are the, these are the boundaries. These are the, uh, the values that we have. I really like what you're saying about company culture and the value of that, though, that this is something that can be designed and promoted yeah. and ought to be, and it should not just be left adrift to sort of figure itself out as it goes. No, it should be, should be defined from the start. And, and again, part of the onboarding part, you know, very clear about what the organization is, whether it's one person or a hundred thousand people is that culture ingrained in them and the ethos of it. And it's always about, you know, be nice to your customers or, you know, do the right thing. So again, um, excuse me, you know, Zendesk wise was that it was about if it doesn't work for the customer, if it is not right solution for them, do not sell it to them. And, mm -hmm. and it, was, it was an ethos of if you do sell it to them, you know, it's, I wouldn't say it's a sackable offense, but, it, you know, it, it, was, it was frowned upon. It had to be the customer was happy and it solved their solution. And if, and if it didn't, then just walk away and say, look, you know, I'm sorry, we're not, um, you know, we're not the right product for you. It doesn't right. fit. Right. We, you know, we recommend this other thing. Yeah, we recommend something else because that, that's, um, you know, the type of process. I, I can't remember the compliance now, but, you know, the, the type of process that you're following to do that. Right. And yeah, once you go out consultative approach. And I yeah, think the hardcore yeah. closer salespeople types would freak out about that. Like, why yeah. aren't you doing that? Yeah. Why aren't you why, getting that yeah. sale? It's right yeah. there. But it, but it's a cultural aspect that comes down, like you say, across all the departments. Because otherwise, that sale goes through. The impact is services then pick it up. Um, the cost of the company, the cost of sale is actually higher because services have to build something custom and to get the actual product to go and do something they can't do to get it to work. Then customer service then have an optimized version that they, you know, it's just, it causes chaos, basically. Um, and, and the customer experience is really bad. Whereas actually, they may come back in two years' time and go, Actually, now we've changed our processes and your policy is a perfect fit. So, mm. um, but you're, you're right, Jason. I think, you know, company culture is key. You get that right at the start and keep to that all the way down. And as you scale up, people, it's just ingrained in them from, what, right. from the onboarding to, to whichever role they go into, it's, it's there. And as long as, you know, the, the, the leadership team um, in any form is always sort of carrying on that mantra and making people aware of it, it just, it sticks. Right. Are you folks, listeners, viewers, hearing what Stuart is saying? <laughs> Onboarding is not just for customers, it's for employees yeah. as well. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. And that is yeah, a, a thing often missed. Oh, yeah. That really gets my back up. It's just, I mean, why would you invest all this money to hire somebody, whether you're five people, 10 people, you know, bring them on board and then just sit them in. It's the same with channel, same argument with channel, but, you know, bring somebody in, sit them in the corner and go, there's a laptop, there's some tools, there's some slide decks. Right, okay, go, go and float your boat now. It's just, it, it, you might as well throw money down the drain. You know, if right. you've got a recruitment team or you time, whichever it is, is a cost to bring that person on board. And they're only going to be successful if you've given the right resources and the right education from day one. If not, it's, it's just going downhill. Mm -hmm. 
So, yeah. Folks wanting to hear more about this should pop over after this interview and listen to the one I did with Jeremy Pope, who is my past co-founder at The Closing Engine, because uh, he built in the culture to that organization right away. And, yeah. and it made a huge impact. And it was like, he, he talks about it as being a bill of rights, the way that, uh, that we put it together, that the employees could hold our feet as founders to the fire if we acted badly, right? And we wouldn't act badly deliberately, right? right? Yeah. But we, in the rush to get things done, especially Jeremy's one of those guys who wants to do 100,000 things in the next nanosecond, right? People can be run over accidentally, right? And if they have a document to point to, which is ours was online, it's, it's on a web page, right? Anybody can see it. Wow, that is a powerful and, and very good thing because it's, it's almost, I don't want to make the comparison too strongly, but it's almost like a union labor contract right of, of okay, this is how we're going to behave right to each other <laughs> i want to shift gears here Stuart, uh yeah. to the second half of the interview you have uh, some experience with something that we haven't had a chance to talk about on the cold star project yet which is a series a investment round and I, I really would like to hear more about that tell us say you know set the scene for us yeah so um when I was at Datasif, we did a, a couple of Series A's, and I joined uh, the second one. I think it was around 15 million, or it may have been more. Um, and the founder and CEO was was leading that, um, that that experience. But there's a couple of things to take away from that. One, it's always going to take twice as long as you think it's going to take. <laughs> Two, actually, once you get that money, it is like a chain around your feet mm. because the investors want you to spend it. And they want you to spend it quickly. Um, what you tend to do is not spend it on the right things because you know if if you've got a really strong board or an investor, they will mentor you and guide you around that. And, and again, I'm more thinking about the smaller sort, not smaller, the younger startup companies that get a series of money like this. Um, but it, but it is binding you because it, literally they want you to spend it as quickly as possible to accelerate growth to get a return against it. So the other thing to think about that's great but your role as a founder is then to go out and do the next round of investment because you've got this round, but you've got a runway now. Mm. Now you've got to go out and do the next one. So you, you, you actually detract it. It makes the business more complex and more painful. Mm -hmm. So you've got to hire the right leadership team to go and run the company while you do that, that uh, the next investment round and also spending this money that they want you to do very quickly and you make wrong decisions. Um, and you can make wrong decisions very quickly that can cost you serious amounts of money for just, doing things that you would think are common sense, but, but not. Right. Um, no, so the author yeah. of Profit First talks about uh, having a ton of money, like having toothpaste in the tube and then you're just using it like crazy because yeah. it's available and you're not thinking, oh, we, we yeah. need the employee juice bar and all yeah. that. Or, or we're going to, it could be as simple as, oh, we're going to dump a ton of money into this new unproven uh, marketing channel. Right. Oh, we're going to generate a whole bunch of leads out of this. We don't really understand it yet, but we'll just, I have seen this mistake happen so many times. We'll just hire some expert in the field to help us. And they pour a lot of, we've done it ourselves, pour a lot of resources into it and nothing happens. You're like, wait a minute, we did all the right things. We hired the right person. But that sense of rushing, I like the tug of war that you described between the investors who want you to, pour fuel on the fire. Come on, you've got a proven business model. Let's accelerate this thing. And the founder 
and leadership team who really ought to be, if they're self-aware, right, really ought to be more cautious about this. Yeah, exactly. And, and Nick was a very sensible chap and spent the money very wisely. Um, it was a bit like me. He was, he was quite tight. So uh, he's, he put it into the right things. But I've seen it over the years where I've seen companies go through it's like winning the lottery. You know, it's like, you know, it's a life changing set of money, but pe- people win $50 million and still have no money because they've got no concept of how to spend that efficiently. And for me, I blame the actual, I don't blame is probably a strong word, but I would say if you're a very, if you're a good investor, um, where you put your money, you then put in a team of people that, 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 uh, organization can call upon as consultants to then help support them and write okay how do we grow the finance team how do we grow this bringing that experience rather than going out like you're saying it's like we need a green juice bar and we need a snooky table oh now we need a new office and we've got to have a, an address on manhattan or some expensive road or and it's like no you, what you need to do is concentrate on generating revenue for the business and still be nimble to make your runway longer because again you decrease in your valuation because you've got to go out and get more money so it becomes a sort of complex cycle like say this this tug of war going on but just i think you know founders of of companies that get to a series a don't have that support it comes back to what we talked about earlier about that management team growing up through the company they've not been trained on how to scale a company and build it from you know a 12 million dollar investment to, to the exit you know exit 250 million or whatever it may be it's, it's just a lump of cash um, right. and, and yeah it's it's you know i've seen it on on a positive side um and i've seen it where it's been really sad because mm-hmm. you've just gone I don't, I don't know how you burn through that cash right i know how you burn through the cash looks at financial statements and obviously you've just been misadvised um around that yeah, or had no no, <laughs> no advice. Yeah, or, or no advice. So for me, it's about, you know, once you get to that Series A, that's when you start to bring in some, we'll say some old people, um, but bring in some consultants, bring in some support, but also always look for an investor or investors that will help support your past post-investment with not just being a name on the board, because that's just a waste of time. Because mm-hmm. it's just, yeah, it's about... What, what can you bring to the table in terms of that experience and address book and mentorship yeah. uh, and guide you through that? And if you can't you bring you that... You might cry about the $30,000 or something that you're investing on getting that person yeah. there, but the payback that they're bringing you exactly. is like not blowing millions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've got to think is like, that's an investment for the future to increase your valuation. So when you, leg- when you exit, you actually can make some money not not being the papers because even though failure in the u.s is treated as good hmm. failure of i've burnt through 12 million pound 12 million dollars of series a fund is not treated as very good because that's just like right okay you just you you, you can't manage an organization right. and some people have gone on and, and done okay from it but yeah it's it's about having a strategy for the organization very clearly set out like you say from a cultural aspect but also then going right okay what's what's the focus of this business is to right. generate revenue and money not to go and buy flipping foosball table. As a consultant, Stuart, who who in the organization, in the in the prospect organization that you're going to go work with, have you found is the most receptive? And what indicators have have they shown you that demonstrate that they're receptive to this kind of thinking, as opposed to the ego driven? Oh, I got to this spot. I must know everything, and I must know everything about making the right decisions going forward. It's, it's quite interesting, really, because I'm working with 
varied companies of, I'll say, founders maturity, um, from people that are in the 40s to people that are in the 30s. Um, and for me, I think what it's, what it's been is that all have realized, because I specialize more just from the channel side, but all have realized they, they, they don't know everything. Um, but also, they have made some mistakes. They have spent some money incorrectly. You know, they've burnt through a lot of cash over the last 12 months and realized, actually, now I do need to do, do something out there. And part of the introductions that I've got and the companies I've worked with have come through investors. Um, that I have seen that and gone, mm. right, okay, uh, I can either get some money back or lose it all, or I can start to bring some people in that can support around that. And I think, again, once you start to dig into these organizations and you start to, you know, get beyond them just talking about the books and blogs they've read, it's like, right, okay, what about some basic sort of stuff? So do you have a senior management team? Brilliant, great, yeah, you do. Do they, make we do they meet weekly? Is there an SLT management dashboard? Are they all working to metrics? Is there a cross-functional strategy that's together from um, engineering through to customer support? Are the QBRs happening? Uh, you know, are, is, it a, is it an actionable, measurable business, or are you just making it up as you go along and hoping you hit target? Um, and once you start to have some of those dialogues with them, what they realize is what they've, what they've implemented and what they've got is they don't know everything. They've pulled everything together that they can, but, but it's not a solid foundation there. So... For me, it's just sort of those conversations open that dialogue up and they realize that um, there's a lot more they can get for the company by, you know, bringing either myself in or other people. But also, they've got a lot of knowledge in that company as well and they want to educate the people there. They don't want to keep them stemmed in. So it's doing that knowledge transfer down, down to the team as well, whether it's an SDR rep selling or a senior leadership person in marketing that says, I thought I knew everything, but actually, no, I don't because... I've only done this type of role before. Okay. So you, you're either brought in by a, an influencer a lot of the time, or the senior manager really has to be in the almost unique position of realizing they don't know what they don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes that senior manager is influenced or, or has been influenced by an outside party mm. um, or, is, or in some instances they've known me personally over the years because of okay. who I am and what I've done. But, but it has been, I've been, I've turned a couple of opportunities down where, again, they've known more than they've known sort of thing. And they've, you know, they've not been a believer about channel or um, they know everything. It's like, I, I can't help you because we're just going to clash because you just know everything. So if you know everything, there's no point in me being here and you're going right. to pay me some money and I'm just going to sit here like a spare part. You know, if, if, if you want it as a, a vanity thing, that's great. But it's not my bag. If I can't help a company and, and walk away feeling that we started at A and now we've got to Z and there's an improvement, I, I don't, I don't take the role because mm -hmm. there is no, there is no value. Yeah. Awesome. How can people get a hold of you if they like what they hear? I'm, I would consider hiring you. Good, good, good question. So I'm in the midst of, uh, I've got a, a, a website up, which I'll send you a link through to, if you put it in the show notes, which sure. is, um, channel as a service, but the URL doesn't sound like that. So just to, to complex things. Um, and there's a contact form on there. It gives you some background on me and some details, or, or you can find me on LinkedIn, Stuart Townsend. I'm not hidden away. I've, I've um, been, been on social so many times. So if you put me, actually, if you put my name in Google, you will find a very attractive actor that has played in vampire films that women go crazy for. <laughs> that, that isn't me. No, no. I'm sorry. <laughs> Unfortunately, damn, exactly. Um, 
but yeah so my name is spelled the scottish way but yeah i'll send you the dsls if you can put that in the show notes that'd be great you bet okay well this was fantastic i think i want to have you on again uh because there's more to to discuss we'll have to have a little on camera or off camera discussion about uh topics and whatnot but uh, a lot of wealth of knowledge here and uh i think people would do well to work with you thanks for joining us today Stuart. yeah perfect thank you it's been pleasure